voices It's up to you and me To shine a guiding light and lead the way United by our cause We have the power to pursue what we believe We'll achieve the realization of our dreams Hello and welcome to this extended New Horizons podcast. Sometimes we do these programs when an interview is just so interesting that it's important for people to hear the parts that uh, we weren't able to put together within the 15 minute time slot allowed on radio for the New Horizons program. We've done a couple of these before and this interview is with Duncan Meerding. Duncan is a furniture designer and lives in Tasmania. You may well have seen his work if you attended the BCA convention at the end of March this year. Duncan was recently invited to come and teach at a very prestigious school of architecture in the UK. He joins me to discuss this opportunity and perhaps some things that might come out of it. Duncan, welcome to the program. Hey Vaughan, thanks for having me. Tell us your story. You haven't always been vision impaired, have you? No, uh, when I was 18, my vision started to degenerate from a condition called Labor's Hereditary Optic Neuropathy, or LHON for short. Um, and then by the end of that year, um, I was left legally blind um, uh, with vision concentrated around the peripheries. So fairly rapid onset then. How did that uh, affect you, do you think? Um, I think things are generally a bit tricky when you're 18. Um, but yeah, it was a bit of a challenging year, uh, I won't lie. But I've had some quite good chances since in terms of being able to finish my, my university and uh, run a small business and things like that. So, you know, there's definitely been a range of ch- challenges along the way. Um, but, uh, you know, um, the first year um, and a bit was probably the trickiest for me. Your small business is, uh, is, is doing quite well, but it's doing something that's uh, very unique in this day and age for someone who's blind or vision impaired. Yeah, so I design and make furniture and lighting, uh, mainly in, tim- in timber or timber-based products, uh, but you know also utilise other materials like um, different types of metal, like aluminium, etc. But um, yeah, I've I've been doing that sort of I've been running that small business for about ten years, and I was in a design cooperative for about seven years where we uh, design design and make a cooperative where we'd have our own studios, and I was there for about seven years. I'm still a member of the board of that organisation, but and, and use the place casually. But uh, I, I now have my own uh, workshop space that I've been in for about three years um, in North Hobart. What do you think are some of the unique challenges that uh, that are presented to you as uh, someone with a fairly significant vision impairment? Um, sometimes the challenge that you'd get as a vision impaired person are some of the things that you'd probably think uh, a bit more unexpected than, than what you'd originally think. Actually, probably one of the things that I get challenged the most with would be uh, ways of being able to interact with, with bookkeeping, for example, because most receipts come out in a hard copy format. And that's just one of those things that you know, it's starting to change a little bit of it. It's one of those things that is probably a challenge for most people. Um, and, but it's even more so in some respects for me because uh, small businesses have to do BAS statements and tax, tax returns and, and have a lot of printed out receipts for, you know, you go buy a packet of screws, you've got to put that against your tax, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, that's the, actually been one of the trickier things. But then there are other things that I suppose are challenges for everyone with small business with, in terms of uh, you know when when the next job's going to come by or what have you, but um, you know some of the other things I suppose I'd have to deal with have been perceptions um, from from people 
uh, who don't have vision impairments about what what I can and cannot do. But um, you know, there, there are definitely ways, challenges of also trying to execute a, a design, coming from having a concept in my head to trying to execute it and working out the best way to do so. And sometimes working out whether it's best to just get somebody else involved in the making process or um, work out a way to make it myself using things called jigs. So is this something that you saw yourself doing before you lost your vision or is it something that uh, you decided on after that? Well, making things was not necessarily at the beginning, at the forefront of my mind when my vision degenerated, but I suppose it's something that sort of came up as an option later on. Um, when I uh, when my vision first went, I sort of was offered a, a few uh, career paths, and I was steered in the directions of massage, uh, amongst other things, which you know don't have anything against people that do massage or what have you. But you just sort of think of the cliche mm-hmm. um, uh, career choices that get um, given to you, and they were given to me by some health professionals. Um, not all of the health professionals, um, I'd, I'd like to sort of add, but um, I was quite lucky in the fact that um, I had um, connections from the vision impaired community in in in, um, in Hobart through people like my uncle um, Doug McGinn, um, who sort of he, he immediately passed me on to other people to just say, look, I don't know everything about everything. Uh, I'll, pa- I'll pass you on to other people because you know it's it's. If there's a, a real breadth of different career, career paths you can take. I'd enrolled in a university degree to go and do something else entirely, um, and that was uh, to study um, sociology and history as my majors. Okay. Um, and I was going to go into social work, and I was doing other prerequisites for the social work degree, including psychology. But then I found out about the Vision Australia um, workshops, and I did a bit of a crash course in safety, and then I started the furniture design course as an, as an elective. Um, down at, at Hunter Street as part of my Bachelor, my bachelor of Arts. Mm. And then I sort of got quite interested from the design side of things because I was just doing it because I thought, oh, yeah, I can get to make things again because I really like doing that as a, as a teenager. And then once sort of I got bitten by the design bug, so to speak, I just sort of kept on going with it and worked out a way with faculty to actually major in my electives. Well, let's talk about the process for a minute. You you come up with a design in your head, say for example, for a table, yeah. and you you have an idea that you want it to sh- to be shaped like this. What do you think are your uh, criteria for designing? So, like, I suppose there's a few things to talk about there. Um, one one is um, aesthetics, and and then and then the other would be the process. So, I sort of sort of start with the aesthetic, and I suppose I, I'm influenced a lot by. Um, the residual vision that I've got in terms of light bursting through the side, and I suppose that's you know I've got I've got limited vision around the peripheries, so that's that's where the light the light side of things comes from, um, and I suppose that also comes from uh, also when I go into nature, I really enjoy that, and so a lot of the work I do has quite soft edges or. Um, or, or shapes or, or, or concentrates on quite distinct forms uh, rather than intense detailing. Um, and so the, the aesthetics is sort of influenced by my, my visual, my visual um, impairment. Um, but, but equally, you know, the curves and things, I think it's, it's not just something that's nice to look at, it's something that's quite nice to touch. Um, and quite, you know, quite, quite regularly if somebody sighted or, or vision impaired is observing my work, they'll go straight away to touch it. 
Um, and I think that's a really important thing because sometimes I think designers forget that people are actually using the objects that they're designing and they design things just to visually look good, but it's this aesthetic, so it's not just visual, it's also um, it's also tactile in other senses. I, I don't know, I, I assume you've done uh, quite a lot of looking at antique furniture and things like that and just how amazingly tactile that is for, for someone who's blind. Um, it's much more interesting, generally speaking, than looking at most of the modern wooden furniture that you see. Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely a, a the handmade movement is definitely something that people are getting back into a bit more, and um, I think that's just a reflection of let's try and reduce the amount of waste that's in society, but also let's try and uh, really appreciate things for their true value. And I think furniture, you know, when it's handmade, has a real um, character to it that you just can't replicate necessarily um, from you know flatbed robotic routers necessarily all the time. Some of my work, as I was saying before, is is quite sim- simplistic. It's it's concentrating on just an overall form, but. If you run your hand across a lot of my work, it's also okay. How does that how does that form transition? And so, for example, something like what's called my lily lamp. It's a you know it's it's got a very button like base and then a, a curvaceous sort of stem, sort of the height of a um, of a lily light. Um, I mean a lily flower rather, and um, then it sort of flows into uh, a shade that's like one of those um, lilies, I'm not quite sure what they're called, like the death lilies, uh, for, for the arm lilies maybe, but um, the, the everything about it sort of it's, it makes you want to sort of run your hands over it. You made a comment previously that uh, a lot of your design process is driven by the fact that you have a vision impairment, and this is something that uh, particularly overseas has, uh, has garnered some attention. You recently went to London. Yeah, so I went to London to help uh, as a teach, uh, guest teaching fellow at the Bartlett School of Architecture in um, the built environment, um, and it's uh, it's in, it's part of the University College of London, and. Uh, the the course that I was engaged to help with the teaching of was um, called Architecture Beyond Sight, and I, I was engaged as um, in in my areas of design and making. And so the module I helped with was really about trying to get people to be able to design, but also um, communicate that design through the medium of making. So I actually got involved um, through. Uh, Joss Boyce and Zoe Partington who coordinate a organisation called Disordinary Architecture and it's an organisation that engages uh, people with disabilities or artists with disabilities to come into universities, museums etc um, to basically consult and make things more accessible but also um, sort of uh, influence people that are currently students as well um, and that that project uh, was um, sort of collaborating with the with the University College of London and, and the Bartlett and they they um, the, the the issues around workshops and making things became a bit of a content contended one I suppose and and this ordinary architecture um, got in contact with me because Zoe had met me through another project because she's actually a visual artist with a vision impairment herself um, and she was doing a project through the British Council where she'd met me about four or five years ago and um, I get this email out of the blue from Zoe going hey what do you think about this do you want to come over and give us a hand um, you know trying to make make the the design Making module more accessible, um, and yeah, there was quite a there's a bit of a bit of a backstory there, but quite an in- interesting one to sort of showcase that you know there are other vision impaired um, visual artists around. 
Do you think if you were um, an architect or, or designing a building as a blind or vision impaired person, because you can't draw a sketch of that or, or draft a plan of that, that making a model is really your best form of expression for that idea? Um, I think making a model is one of the skills uh, in terms of communicating the idea. There are other ways of doing so, um, but I think the fact that uh, if you're vision impaired, you're immediately going to feel the drawing and look at it in a different way to a sighted person. Um, and Chris Downey, one of the other guest um, teaching fellows, he actually designs not just through model making, but he also designs through wax pens or through an, a tactile printer that he has where people will send the drawing and then he'll adjust it with, with his wax pens or, or um, other mediums in terms of him being able to understand the drawing but also add to it as well. How important in architecture, particularly for a blind or vision impaired person, is spatial awareness? Um, I think spatial awareness is uh, really important. And I suppose vision impaired people do really interact with buildings in, in a slightly different way to the sighted. Um, and I suppose also we do pay attention to stuff that does influence people um, who are sighted as well. Um, but you know, because people are so busy drawing things on computer screens when they're designing stuff in terms of architecture, um, not having that ability to to do that means that you're able to really focus on the, those things that are sometimes left behind, like acoustics, for example, or, or the tactility of the surfaces. And that's something that the Bartlett was really wanting to do. So it's not just about changing um, architecture to include people with vision impairments. It's about changing architecture. It's about trying to make it more tactile. It's about trying to make it so that people can uh, understand the acoustics of an environment better. But the vision impairment uh, or vision impaired people and, and blind people can be at the forefront of those changes. And um, the Bartlett are really, really trying to push that as a as a um, as a as an agenda. Mm. It's also extremely important, I would say, for people who are blind or vision impaired to understand the overall shape of a building because it's actually quite rare to, uh, you know, to to put yourself in a position of understanding the complete shape, um, particularly of a larger public building, because you're only seeing a small portion of it at a time, and frequently you're only seeing it from the inside. Um, is this something that you think that uh, that courses like this can really help with? Yeah, I think there's a there's a lot this course can help with. One one is accessibility in general, um, so that we can try and make buildings more accessible for everyone uh, in the universal design concepts. But two, it's it's about trying to understand. Okay, well, how can we actually get people with vision impairments to be able to understand the built environment more so um, through uh, through touch or through the observing things in different ways? And um, you know, there's you know, just if you just think about the sheer number of buildings that are out there that there aren't models for that vision impaired people can touch. It's it's quite astronomical if you think about it. So that visual medium that other people are getting to see when they're going through schooling or through university or what have you, or you know even just in in through tourism shots, um, the some a lot of the time the the, the non-sighted or, or vision impaired people are not able to to observe those things, and it, it means their interaction with that particular environment is, is can sometimes be different. Yes, and I, I think there can be a, a significant disconnect between um, the, the points that a, a blind or vision impaired person will bring up about a building versus the way that the sighted person sees it, as you've already mentioned. And that, that can often um, lead to some significant confusion, particularly, for example, if you're giving someone directions around a building. 
a lot of vision impaired people do interact with something quite differently. And I suppose if, if there's certain things that are interactive for both sighted and, and, and non-sighted alike, it can be good because it means that if it's easier to get around for the vision impaired person, it's going to be easier for the person uh, who's got full sight to be able to do so as well. And, um, you know, it, it's, it basically goes back to the whole concept of universal design and making things accessible for everyone. Mm. There was a, a, a blog post written by a lady who was a student uh, when you taught at the course. Basically, she said that it was incredibly eye-opening and she really enjoyed it and learned so much from, from the experience. What do you think you took away from the experience? Um, I think the big thing I took away from the experience was the breadth of ideas and the richness of ideas that could come out of that one-week course and just the sheer amount of potential that could happen if we tried to make those sorts of courses accessible everywhere, not just at the Bartlett, but let's try and make bridging courses for everyone everywhere so that they can we can really change architecture to be more reflective society as a whole. Um, and I think just just the sheer amount of ideas that came out of the, that course was amazing, um, just um, in terms of concept. And it's it really it's not just about making architecture more accessible; it's about making architecture better. And it's also about enabling blind and vision impaired people to get back to making things with their hands, because that's something that, uh, in many ways, that they're quintessentially well suited to. Yes, very much so. And I think the really important thing is just to take home is that there are some certain skills that people can really develop. It's just a matter of having the time and the expertise to do so. And, you know, I I utilise a range of um, uh, hand tools but also power tools. But, uh, you know, the concept behind doing that is sometimes daunting if you haven't got the expertise or the the tools to do so. And um, I think, you know, really if you're interested to try and uh, look into avenues to, to train up and do those things because it is quite quite a quite a good thing um, to be able to do or an um, interesting to, do, to be able, a cathartic thing to do rather um, but the big thing that I really sort of took back from Faye's article the woman that you were referring to earlier she referred to being basically pushed or discouraged away from coming into workshops in, in art school environments because she's an independent artist and she was quite worried about going into that area and I think, well, okay, let's let's try and stop let's try and stop that sort of um, culture. Let's try and educate people that people people with vision impairments uh, are capable. It's just a matter of making slight adjustments. Let's look into that a little bit more closely. Is there anybody else in in Australia that's doing what you're doing? Um, f- I'm not sure. I know that there are some people that have gone through different making uh, courses and, and things. Um, there's definitely um, a few different smaller businesses that do, um, design and make things. Um, I'm not sure of his full name. Um, there's made with Altitude or something might be his business name. Um, but he's from up in the Northern Rivers area and he's making different things, different wooden toys basically. Um, and then there's uh, there's a fashion designer who's partially blind as well, I think, from Victoria. And there's there's a range, there's a few different people with vision impairments involved in visual arts or making things. But I think it is an area where people get a bit um, 
you know, they get think they're boxed out from, so to speak. Um, and I think it's an area which we've got to really continue the conversation about trying to increase people's um, access to that to that said area. Um, you know, because f- for example, you know, only a few years ago there was one state government education department within Australia. Uh, one of them was discouraging students from using scissors because of it being a public liability and health health risk. And it's like, well, when is the vision impaired and blind student g- going to learn how to use scissors in that context? So I think if that's that's the starting point, we're going to be setting people up for failure. But I'm glad that that's now changed. But I think that's it's definitely something that's sort of uh, symbolic of areas where. We need to try and break down some of those um, barriers that are in people's minds. Yes, and those barriers are significant, particularly these days when, uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago, there were lots of blind and vision impaired people making things from brooms to uh, clothes pegs and baskets and all sorts of amazing things um, and repairing things as well. Um, You know, pots and pans and things like that. And these jobs just don't exist anymore. No, but for me, for example, I'm involved in a fairly artisanal um, uh, design designer maker practice, and and I think that's the thing is we just sort of got to change with the times a bit, but also understand that we can still make things, and it is quite a useful thing to be able to do, be able to pick up a screwdriver and know how to use it, for example, because there are still plenty of things that need fixing within our own houses. Mm. But um, in terms of running your own small business, it's totally possible, and I, I've been really lucky with my my design making practice. I've gotten some rather good, nice looking lucrative commissions uh, within Australia and also overseas and, and also won, uh, won some awards, which sort of showcases that um, having a vision impairment isn't necessarily always a bad thing in terms of the des- design concept. It really can be quite an asset as well. So where to from here for you? Uh, I've been travelling around for a bit. I just got back from the Arts Activator Conference in New South Wales. Um, arts, it's an arts and disability conference uh for within Australia, but um, I've been travelling a bit between different things like the Architecture Beyond Site and and some other exhibitions. I'm looking forward to actually just getting back and catching up with um, a range of things to do with my, my design practice and especially trying to actually design and make some new work. Everyone I've spoken to who's uh, who's seen your work, both from sighted people and blind people, have told me how amazing it is. Where can people find out more information? Uh, mainly through the internet, I suppose, my, my website, um, which is just duncanmeeting.com.au, um, but other, otherwise there are some articles and things online as well. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me, Vaughan. And that was Duncan Meeting. I hope you've enjoyed this extended New Horizons podcast, and if you'd like to hear more of them, do let me know. New.horizons at bca.org.au is the email address. New.horizons at bca.org.au. And as a reminder, if you'd like to know more about Duncan's work, you can look him up through Google, or you can look at his website, duncanmeeting.com. I'm Vaughan Benison. Thanks for your company. Don't forget, if you want to contact Blind Citizens Australia, 1800 033 is the phone number. bca at bca.org.au is the email address. If there's anything you'd like to hear featured on New Horizons, and particularly, as I said earlier, if you'd like to hear more of these extended podcasts, do let me know. As a reminder, new.horizons at bca.org.au is the email address. I'll talk to you again next week. We'll achieve the realisation of a dream Of a dream